Welcome to Training for Ultra, the podcast. Welcome to episode 67 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. And I use this term very rarely, but we have a legend on the show tonight. Bart Yasso, the mayor of running. We chatted for 40 minutes after the interview. He's just a really, really incredibly nice guy. And I know he's inspired probably millions of people at this point. So I'm just honored to have him on the show. I hope you guys... You know, hear something slightly different, some something new from Bart. You get some kind of unique insight, and hopefully, this is entertaining and inspiring for you. Big thank you to Hammer Nutrition. If you haven't tried them out, feel free to use my promo code twenty five twenty eight eighty eight, and you'll save fifteen percent off your first order. Big thank you to Candace Burt and Destination Trail. They put on amazing races. They have races all the way up to two hundred milers, but They have races of all distances, and they're all phenomenal. And from my one experience at their race, their their, um, aid stations and and volunteers and everything was phenomenal. So I highly recommend them. And Sufferfest Beer, they have great distribution, California, Colorado, and they are actually gluten-free beer. So for us gluten-sensitive people... They don't like to talk about it much because it's just a good tasting beer, but uh, definitely check them out. Highly recommend them. And Exoskin, I'm still going through shock how well how well their uh, products work for me. So I use their base layers, their calf sleeves, and their toe socks and regular socks at Moab. And I was very happy with the performance. Very high-tech material. None of my clothes or anything smelled afterwards. Um... And you don't have to wash them every day. So you could actually have socks that you don't have to wash after every single run. And you don't even have to dry them. You just, yeah, lay them on top of the dryer wherever to dry. Um, so it's, I highly recommend them. I, I wouldn't have them as a sponsor if I didn't believe in the product. And I've actually used them and believe in them. So if you want to give them a shot, 20% off. Use the promo code T, the number 4 U20 for 20% off. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. You guys have all been amazing and make this all work. And my book, Training for Ultra, Ultra Running Stories from the Middle of the Pack, is now available for pre-order on my website, trainingforultra.com. So if you haven't pre-ordered it, it's available. I'll throw in a keychain, a car magnet, and a Training for Ultra sticker for each pre-order. I'll make sure to get those out before the holidays. So if you are gifting it, You'll have something to give those those people. And just really appreciate you checking out the story. I'm trying to inspire you to get out and run and just sharing my humble my humble start and giving you some details that maybe you haven't heard before on Moab 240, CCC, and a bunch of other races and training runs. And hopefully it's just entertaining and enjoyable and you find it inspiring. So looking forward to sharing that with you. I'm joined here by Bart Yasso, the mayor of running, uh, truly a legend in our sport. Bart, thank you for taking the time to join me on the Training for Ultra podcast. Oh, thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. This is a joy for me. 
I, I was telling him before the show started, I, I feel like I know you. I've read your books. You know, I followed followed you for quite some time, and you've been a huge inspiration for not only me, but I'm sure at this point millions and millions of people. So it's just an honor having you on the show. I'm, I'm really excited. Oh, thank you, Ron. I, I love the reason that you do this show. I mean, to connect with the community, but also to keep the sanity in your family. So you yeah running at the kitchen table that my, is awesome. my wife is so excited that we don't we don't have talk ultra running because i have this outlet <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> um, that is the that is the best and before we get started i wanted to say that there's it's rare that i i have a one-on-one with a former child caddy oh, so yeah. i grew up i want to say i was around 12 when i started caddying is that right around the same well, age that, yeah that's exactly when you working papers and uh 12 years old you're allowed to go out there and pick up a bag and make some money and uh wow what a, i thought i was rockefeller when i caddied i came home oh, with yeah 14 dollars this was 1967 <laughs> and i thought man nobody has as much money as i have <laughs> i thought the same you know, way yeah you know when you're 12 what you think is the big world you just don't know uh so i thought i was living large coming home with 14 dollars every day and saving it in a glass jar you know all summer long would you would you do a single loop or would you would you oh, carry? I tried to do doubles, and sometimes uh, I went out with people. I would take a cart, and uh, I would just run behind them and rake the traps and handle their clubs and suggest what clubs to use and that kind of you know make sure they had the correct yardage and all that kind of stuff. I had I had that couple uh, steady clients that requested me to, uh, and they would take a cart, and I'd just run behind them. But then I also I carried many a bag out there <laughs> when uh, I was. Uh, probably 60 pounds at the time maybe not even that much and yeah i think weighed 60 pounds back in the day so it was a but it was a joy just being outside and trying making money that way it was fun yeah i mean i i was the same way and it was kind of a taste of nature for me just because i i lived in a suburb and you know didn't have many opportunities to go to parks and do that sort of thing so um it was always very green. Anyways, this isn't a, a golf podcast. So. <laughs> we spun off on caddies uh, in our youth. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that connection reading the book and hearing you talk about that. And then, I mean, you talked about, um, you know, early in your life, you know, having to battle some issues. I think you said drugs and alcohol because sure. I, I was battling essentially just horrible eating just trash eating um and really putting on some weight and having uh a you know difficulty in that sense it seems like you overcame two pretty serious situations you know if the listener is going through something similar i just i was interested to hear how you went about it and then you know that obviously led to some running yeah yeah rob i uh i don't know why you know i picked that path at a young age to think alcohol and drugs were the, my ticket out you know to, i guess you just live in a altered state and uh you know i really did pick that path of alcohol and drugs and at some point i realized this is not where i want to be and luckily i was young enough to make the change and uh running helped me out tremendously and you know i was just to say to people that running saved my life and, uh, you know, it was not just 
the act of running. It was the transformation that happened to me that opened up so many doors. And I found out I was good at running and I had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, but I, you know, when I look back, uh, it really, you know, actually saved my life because uh, I don't know, this was a couple of years ago. I wrote down about 15 names of people that I associated with when I was in this drug and alcohol haze uh, back in my youth. And when I wrote down those names, I realized that none of those people were, are alive. And they were all my age. And, uh, you know, they all committed suicide or o overdosed on drugs or just horrible things happened to all of them. Wow. And so, truthfully, I mean, when I say running saved my life, I'm not kidding. It really uh, saved my life, gave me focus, gave me a lot of stuff that I didn't think uh, I would get out of running. But that's what happened. It did really, they, really helped me out. Did that give you the chills going through one by one and, real, like, making that connection? Like, as yeah, you I, almost I, check I, them off in a weird sense? Yeah, like, so I, I knew a lot of them passed away i knew that you know i knew a lot of them had you know stayed on alcohol and drugs and you know had a horrible life and uh you know died young and tragically uh but i never really i never really thought about it i never really wrote down the names and really you know a couple of people i haven't heard from in a long long time and i didn't know what happened to them but as i it's pretty easy to research people today with the internet and then you find out that you know they're gone and yeah. uh yeah, when I really wrote down those names and really looked at that list and thought, wow, that uh, that was me. Uh, you know, I was just fortunate at the age of 21 that I decided that wasn't the path I wanted to go down. And what was what was the spark? Like, what was the catalyst that made you different from this group of friends that you were hanging out with? Yeah, I think uh, you know when I wrote the book my life on the run i had to come up with you know how did this all start what what is that like you said rob what is that catalyst what is that one thing there's there's a reason why we all head out the door and do this for the first time what is it and you know i think it was a combo of things for me but uh the thing i remember a lot uh when i started running was my best friend growing up was in a tragic accident you know he uh he stepped out in front of a car. He had way too much to drink and came out of this bar and walked out onto the street and got hit by a car. And, uh, you know, when I saw him in the hospital, you know, on death's bed, uh, he did survive it. And he let a pretty, you know, he had to live in a facility that took care of him because he didn't have all his faculties after this accident. Uh, you know, it, uh, when I saw him, I, that's, that's when you're like looking in the mirror and think, okay, this is this is me if I keep living this lifestyle, and that was certainly a, a big wake up. And then I think just someone, people that I was close with, like my mom, who said, you know, I'm worried about you, that kind of stuff. That when someone looks you in the eye and says that, and that's someone you really care about, that's uh, kind of an eye-opening experience. That I said, okay, I can, you know, I think I'm only harming myself, but I am hurting other people. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, the other thing that made me change. I, I didn't want to hurt other people that cared about me like my mom. I mean, I just uh, I wasn't willing to do that. So I knew I had to make the change. And so what – did you have a, a single race or two that that popped up? And I, I, I don't want to play like – I don't want to go all along the uh, – 
the outline of the book. So <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I, no. I feel like subconsciously yep. I'm reliving the book here. So I need to um, pull away a little no, no, bit we, there, but yeah. sure. Now I think it was just you know I when I started running I was just I was getting a peace and solitude out of running. I was never thinking I'm going to do a race someday. I mean I was just going out for these morning runs and just loving life and you know just running three or four miles a couple times a week which i thought was a lot of running yeah and then uh i did that first road race uh 39 years ago and uh once i did that first road race uh i was hooked on on racing and doing stuff because i really what i loved about it was the challenge and you know when you do that when i did that first race i realized you know Unless you're good enough to, to, to win races, which, you know, I was lucky I got good enough to win a you know, fair amount of races in my younger days. But, but early on, you don't just start winning races. You know, I started out, I was just happy to finish these races. And, but yeah. what I realized was, you know, running is just so pure. The harder you worked, your payoff was faster times when you ran the race. And I loved that. You're not judged by anybody but yourself, and the hard work you personally do pays off when you when you cross that finish line. And I just love that, and uh, that's what got me hooked on trying to improve on different distances and just sticking with it and trying to do every type of race and every you know I ended up running all over the world. I wasn't thinking like that in the first couple of years I was doing races, but uh, but I really wanted to challenge myself. What what kind of training were you doing as as you were progressing and getting better and traveling and you know becoming competitive? Yeah, back in the so when I started doing road marathons thirty eight years ago, uh, you know every runner I knew that uh, I was associated with all ran a hundred miles a week. So I thought, okay, I got to run a hundred miles a week because that's what everyone else does. <laughs> and I don't think you really have to run a hundred miles a week when I look back on it, but. Uh, the people I was running with were pretty good runners, uh, and you know they were up in the ante to 120 miles a week eventually. So I was one of those people, uh, you know, running 100 miles a week, going to the gym a couple times a week, you know, just trying to be the best I could. But it was yeah. very commonplace, late 70s, early 80s, that uh, you know marathoners were pumping out 100 miles a week. It was just the it was just a mainstay. I was, you know, I wasn't doing anything different. I was just trying to fit in, and a uh, little different today. But that's, uh, but it shows the difference when you look at results. Like uh, if you go to '83 Boston Marathon, where there were only 4,000 runners in the race compared to you know 30 plus thousand that do it these days. Back then, there were, I think in '83 there were 2,700 of those 4,000. We broke, you know, broke three hours. So if you wow. came in at two fifty nine fifty nine, you were you got your place was like twenty seven hundred. If you do the Boston now, Boston Marathon now, and break three hours, you're way up in the you know top finishers. It was a different world back then. It was uh, people ran to run fast and no other reasons. It was uh, you know it was just a different. The sport was the same. It just wasn't uh, it wasn't inclusive to people that couldn't run these fast times. It was a uh, different world than what it is today tell me about that expansion in in kind of that burst of 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 marathon running becoming uh so popular and clearly the middle of the pack and back of the pack are now included in these races when 
uh, clearly there's no, I mean, there might have been a few individuals, <laughs> but not, yeah. not like there is today. It seems like the real boom in running was in the middle and back of the pack. Um, yeah, I think how, that's How did really you see happened. that play out? Yeah, I mean, I physically got to see it. So, you know, went from the sport when uh, when we lined up with a marathon that had 4,000 people back in 1980, 81, we thought, wow, 4,000 people, this is insane. And now, as you go, 50,000 plus people line up. Uh, we thought 4,000 was a big, big race. But, you know, what happened was the uh, – so. You know, I show runners that are new. I don't save a lot of things, but for some reason I have some old Boston stuff. And, uh, you know, I got these old result booklets. And if you didn't run under three hours and 35 minutes in the Boston Marathon, you're not in the results. You weren't counted. Whoa. And today the median time in the Boston Marathon is like 342. So literally they would eliminate, like, you know, if they went by the <laughs> by the old rules, they would have eliminated about 60% of the field in the race. Wouldn't be counted as a finisher. So, at some point, the sport decided that uh, you know we're going to start opening up to everyone, and uh, and then people started showing up. And then, of course, women really took off in our sport. Uh, there were some iconic moments in women's running that really uh, boosted the sport, like Joan Samuelson winning the. Gold medal in '84 in Los Angeles, first ever women's Olympic marathon, and uh, you know the story of Catherine Switzer, which happened in 1967, but got a lot of media attention uh, into the '80s as they pushed for women's equality in running. And uh, you know, and then people like Oprah Winfrey ran a marathon, and uh, you know, it was this whole thing: if Oprah can do it, I can do it. And you know, it just you just saw women coming into our sport at such a high level. In fact, I just I just saw a tweet the other day, and it's the first time I've ever seen this tweet uh, that there's an ultra 50k down in Maryland. I believe it's called the Algonquin 50k, and they have more women. The, the race sold out. I think it's a field of 200 people, 200 runners, and the race sold out. And there are more women than men. Wow. The ultra. Now That's it's very awesome. common to have more women than men in in many other distances, but I haven't seen that in an ultra until I saw that tweet last week. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. I, Obviously women are, you know, now into ultras in a big way. And that wasn't the case. Uh, you know, my first ultra was 30 years ago and that wasn't the case. There were very few women doing the ultra scene. Uh, you know, as the women were coming into running, but, uh, they weren't coming in at the, you know, the marathons were still skewed men, and ultras were still skewed men. But uh, obviously, the times are changing. I mean, between between you and I, because I know no one else is listening, um, I would say one of my top favorite ultra runners running currently uh, is is female. Like I I draw inspiration equally, if anything, these days. Some of the female field has been just hugely inspiring and amazing oh, yeah. so that's really cool to hear though yeah and, yeah it could be that you're talking about maybe camille is that who uh yeah camille definitely and, and courtney dewalter oh, yeah. definitely yep. and yeah there's a whole and list these women of, are running fast and they are just setting these records uh you know, I always say Camille runs like a girl. She she runs faster than all the guys in the race. I mean, she <laughs> went out right at Chicago 
the hundred miler where she beat every man in the race. I mean, she she's unbelievable. But yeah. there are women coming into the sport of, of ultra running, and they're making a big impact, and they're uh, you know they are exceptional athletes. And uh, you know what? It, you know when you when the, you when I witness this change, it's it's human nature. Nobody goes to where they don't feel welcomed. So if you go to this race and they stop you know, counting finishers at three and a half hours and you come in and there's like, oh yeah, okay, get a, get a Gatorade and get out of here. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, you're not going to get back to your car, or your hotel room and go, oh man, I can't wait to do this race next year. Like no one would do, do that. You would feel like, wow, they, uh, this is not a place for me. You know, so I, it's just human nature to, to go where you feel welcomed and where you feel like you're part of this community. And that's the transformation that running had started accepting all abilities and encouraging all abilities. And that's when the sport just hit this whole new level. And uh, I, I feel very lucky that I physically witnessed this transformation. Are, are you seeing the same thing in ultra running, how it used to be? Kind of, kind of like your Boston group of four thousand, and now it's fifty thousand. Yeah. Are, are you seeing the same thing where it used to be the super elites, and now it's someone like me showing up to the start line and, and yeah, being able to finish? It's funny to say that, Rock, because I remember, uh, you know, I used to volunteer at an ultra back in the early '80s before I ever did one, and uh, you know, it was an unusual group of people. And they were considered unusual. <laughs> and but that's what they liked, and they didn't want to be in a big race, and they wanted to be, you know, these outcasts that just do this long distance stuff that no one else does. So it was really small races. Like when I used to work this 50 mile race, I mean, we had to be out there volunteering for 12 hours, and there were only like 30 people in the race. <laughs> but, you know, we had to make sure they had fluids, and you know, we were out there all day. We would you know, get there real early and do our, our run and then, you know, volunteer all day. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I loved it, to be honest. But it really was a small crew, and they all knew each other, and that's what they loved about it. You know, they didn't want to go to a road marathon with thousands of people. They just wanted these smaller races, and they wanted that, uh, that connection that they would go there and they would know everybody. And then the sport kept growing, and then that, like you said, Rob, it's – uh, you know, the numbers are the amount of ultras out there are growing, and then of course the amount of ultra runners are growing. And, uh, you know, and it's still, you know, it's still a small number compared to the other parts of uh, like road running and things like that. Uh, but it's it's cool to see that people are, are encouraged. Uh, you know, and I, I get this question on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. People find my personal email, however, to get a hold of me. In the old days when I worked at Runner's World, they just email me at Runner's World, you know, like, I want to be an ultra runner. What do I do? And I'm like, okay, you're a runner. Like, that's the bottom line. If you're a runner, you can be an ultra runner. You just have to do an ultra. You don't have to do anything different. Exactly. Uh, you, know, just, I, I, you know, I always say if you just want a basic training advice just to get you going, just add a couple miles onto your long run. But to do that, just slow the pace down, and then you can add a couple miles on your long run and do a 50K trail run. You'll find out it's easier on your body than a road marathon, and then you're going to go, oh, my God, where's the next one? (laughs) And then you're going to eventually do a 50-miler, and then, you know, if you're really into it, 
and make a lot of friends in the ultra community, then you're going to meet all these friends of yours that have run a hundred miler, and then you know you got to run a hundred miler, and that's just it's just the way it goes. Uh, you know, it's, it's pure. Uh, it's, it, it comes down to pure pressure ultimately. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of it is just like in a fun way. Like people yeah. don't say, "Oh, we don't hang out with you unless you do a hundred miler." It's just that you. <laughs> When you meet these people and, and then you realize, well, you know, if Joe did it or Sally did it, why shouldn't I do it? You know, they seem like normal people like me and they run, you know, I run as fast as they do. What's why shouldn't I do it? And that's when it just uh, just becomes it just organically grows because no one no one ever says to another ultra runner that, you know, just did their first 50K. Oh, don't ever do more than 50K. You know, you got to, you know. That, that's it for you. I mean, it's the exact opposite. As you know, everyone says, oh, you're going to be hooked now. <laughs> I think it's and, uh, it's awesome that, you know, the community, well, the community is super supportive, both in marathoning and half marathons. And, you know, even 10Ks and 5Ks are awesome. I think the whole running community as a whole is just amazingly supportive. But the trail and ultra running community Kind of this group of outcasts a lot of times is even more supportive, which is kind of yeah. mind-blowing. Um, yeah, I call it family. Like yeah, uh, it you is. weren't looking for family, and then all of a sudden you have family. And this is your, your ultra friends. And, uh, you know, it, it just feels more like family because it is a smaller group. You know, when you go to a big marathon, a big road marathon, you certainly see a lot of your running friends or meet people. But... It just seems like the ultras are the field sizes are smaller, and you really connect with more people, or maybe not more people. It seems like you just connect at a, at a, you know, you make more connections with a people with the people yeah. that you meet. Deeper, deeper level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Thank I, you, Ron. I yeah, totally agree. Levels of uh, connection, and then you're like, wow, I know all about this person, and uh, you know, I'll give you a great example. I did this uh, 50k about four years ago. Uh, it was like October 2014. I did this 50K, and this guy, we start running, and he said, Pariazzo, I want my picture with you. Can I can I run with you a little bit and get my picture with you? I said, yes, no problem. And uh, and actually, that that's what he said to me before the race started. And so the race starts, and we, we start running together, and we get a selfie as we're running, and we're heading out. And, uh, you know, he... he he wanted answers from me, and I didn't know all the answers that he wanted. He, you know, he, he was a he's an African American guy, my friend Daryl, and uh, you know, at that time he was a total stranger to me. I just we just introduced ourselves, and uh, you know, he's asking me why am I the only African American in this race of 400 runners? And I said, Daryl, I I don't know that answer, but I think you should know that answer because you're, you know, we'll talk about it after after this run, or we can talk about it during the race, whatever you think. I, but I don't know all the answers, but I wish there were more African Americans in this race. That's the bottom line. I said to him. So, turns out we run this entire 50k race attached at the hip. I mean, literally, nice. stride for stride, uh, run the entire 31 miles together. We finish, trade cell phone numbers. You know, find out. He loves golf. I love golf. We became golfing partners right away. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. And just the connection that we made, you know, we really, uh, you know, I connected him with a lot of people on the, the National Black Marathon Association, uh, which also has, you know, ultra runners. And, uh, you know, he he said it, he, you know, he felt like, uh, you know, what he, what he was doing was trying to get more African-Americans into the ultras. And he said it worked, you know, just 
connecting with people, just encouraging them to give it a try. And, uh, you know, it was really cool to, to see this. And that's what we talk about on the golf course. We, uh, we talk very little running on the golf courses and running as in training and things like that. But we talked a lot about uh, the community and how to encourage people who don't think they should be part of the community, how we can get them out there. That's what we talked about in the golf course. So, <laughs> you talk around here. Yeah. Nice shot. What do you think about yeah. Uh, yeah. this training block? <laughs> yeah, really, uh, it was pretty interesting. But it was really, the running that we talked about was never really about training. It was really about, you know, he was really, uh, he wanted the African-American community to grow in distance running. And that's, you know, we figured out ways and figured out reasons why people, you know, why the African-American community was not well represented in ultras and things like that. So It's, it's interesting. Pretty, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's awesome that you guys connected and I've had, I've had races where I ran with like one or two people for the majority of the race. And I, like, we only spend a few hours together, but I feel like I know those people better than yeah. maybe some like colleagues and stuff. So it's kind of weird. Um, yeah. So as you're progressing through and, and crushing marathons and getting better at that distance, I mean, what's inspiring you to continue to push yourself with? Your training and during the race, you know, it, it takes a lot. And then when do you first hear about ultras? Yeah. So training through, you know, marathons through the 80s. And I, I did a lot of triathlons and Ironmans and things like that. And, uh, you know, I it was just it was easy to train. I never got injured. Running 100 miles a week was just like the easiest thing to do. And it sounds crazy to me now. Because uh, now I run, you know, if I do 15 miles a week, I'm pretty happy. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and I think back and and I invest time into running 15 miles a week. But back then, 100 miles, 110 miles a week, it was just like nothing. Uh, you know, just I don't you know, I was a lot faster, which makes a big difference in the time commitment. But it was just easy to do. And I just enjoyed it. And I had a lot of friends that, uh, you know, that I trained with. So it was it was a social thing. It was a fun thing. And, you know, I was decent at it. So, so you know, it was a whole new level. But I was always told uh, by the people I, I, you know, I thought the most of in running, you know, not, not, not a paid coach, but people that, you know, that I looked up to that were older than me and had more running experience than I had. They always said, uh, you got to do ultra someday, but you don't do that till you get all the marathon stuff out of your system. Because if you do that ultra stuff, you're going to get slow and beat up, and you're, you know, so keep doing the marathons till you're till you're done with that, and then uh, do a couple of these ultras. And I believe them. I don't think there's any truth to it that if you do an ultra, you really slow down and lose a lot of leg speed. Uh, but uh, you know, I believe these guys at the time, and so I didn't pursue the, those ultras. And that's why, you know, when I was out there volunteering at these ultras, I was like. Why am I not out there? I would say that to myself every once in a while. And then I'd say, okay, you know, Carmen, my buddy, says don't do them until later. And I, so I'd say, okay, I'll, I'll wait till I'm a little bit older and I'll do these ultras. And, and then I ended up uh, getting my job at Runner's World in 1987. And then uh, I got a work assignment in 1989 to do the Badwater 146, which, you know, Badwater was 146 miles back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, at the time, I certainly had a lot of marathons under my belt and had a lot of miles under my belt. So I, 
you know, I wasn't intimidated about it. I, in fact, that I think that was my mistake. I was just very casual about running Badwater. Uh, I just said, okay, you guys say I should do it. I'll, I'll do it if that's my work assignment. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, there's worse jobs than running across Death Valley. So, I know. <laughs> but I really kind of, you know, I got assigned to do it in like February, and I really – really didn't pay attention to it till like sometime in May. I said, okay, this race is in two months. And, you know, I got serious about it because I started making, uh, air, you know, uh, air reservations and things like that. And I said, okay, we've got to get serious about the training too. And I, you know, I just thought maybe I'll go out and run like 30 or 40 miles. And, you know, I remember going out and I did about 25 miles and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything more than, what I would do for a marathon, so I can run 146 miles, I think. <laughs> you know, I just had that, uh, you know, I just was convinced I could do it, so. So your, peak, really your peak week was basically peak marathon week. Yeah, I just trained like a marathoner, Interesting. And, you know, like I was doing, and I didn't really switch anything out. I remember, uh, you know, I always ran at lunch at work, because it's, when you work at Runner's Worlds, you know, we had this chalkboard where you'd put where you are, and I would just, you know, right on chalkboard heading out for a 10 mile run be back in an hour 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 and five minutes whatever nice. uh you know so people knew where where you were uh, but it's nice to be able to do that and then come back and then go to lunch that was yeah. uh, one of the joys of working at runner's world uh the run, being fit and running was part of my job uh so you know i just remember uh you know one lunch one day at lunch i said okay i gotta prepare for this heat so i put on like uh you know, a hat and gloves and like a, a suit I would wear in the winter time, even though it was like 90 degrees out that day. And I go out at noon and try to run 10 miles in this crazy, you know, amount of clothing. And people are looking at me like I'm out of my mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I came back and thought, oh, my God, I almost killed myself on a, on a training run. Like, what am I doing? And that's when I said, okay, I'm not, whatever happens in this round, I'm not going to train any different than I just go out and train. I'll figure it out when, uh, after the gun goes off. And, uh, so that's, that's basically, you know, I got there and I do remember when you're standing at the starting line and, you know, uh, you're thinking, okay, this race is 146 miles and I never ran past 26.2 in my life. You know, the race is 120 miles longer than my longest run. Uh, that, you know, you really got that's where you think okay i got to be smart about this race and pace myself and really uh you know hold back early on and we didn't know about walk breaks back then uh was just was not part of running so you know we ran everything so you just had to run an easy pace and just kind of let the you know let the race come to you and that's you know i just remember i i, I can stand here today even though the race was almost 30 years ago and i can honestly say you know, I'm not saying it wasn't arduous to do. It's an arduous race. There's no no way around it. But I can tell you, every footstep was a joy. I mean, just everything. Uh, you know, Death Valley is such a unique place. Just having the opportunity to run through Death Valley. Uh, you know, again, the, the temperatures are insane and the heat, you know, it's just, uh, it's brutal. But that's the mystique of Death Valley. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the terrain is, you know, as you know, it is hilly. Yeah. You really, uh, you got to deal with some downhills outside of once you go over Towns Pass and come into the Panamint Range. 
and then uh, you know, and then you back up again. And then, of course, in the old days, we went up that brutal road to get up to the the entrance to Mount Whitney to get on the hiking trail on the 11 miles up the mountain to get to the top of the mountain. It's a, it's a, it's an arduous task. That extra 11 miles, man. <laughs> I can't, yeah, that, I can't imagine. I can't believe you became an ultra runner starting with bad water, and it was the 146. Like, yeah, like I would have never have done that ever <laughs> if it wasn't for work. I mean, I would have never said like, oh, I'm gonna do bad water as my first ultra. But you know, these people in runners' world, Amby Burfoot, a gentleman who won the Boston Marathon, uh, Bob Wishnia, who I worked with back then, who you know knew everything about, knew everyone in running and knew everything about running, and George Hirsch, who was our publisher, who's, you know, at that point had 40 years of running under his belt. And, you know, all these people, they all just said, I was the guy to do it. I was the <laughs> guy on staff. And, you know, Part they had, they had they, confidence in me. So I was like, okay. Did they like you? I, no, I'm they, just kidding. They, they, yeah. They did like because they always, they did say, like, when it really got down to the nitty gritty, when we're, we're ready to leave, they said, okay, you really don't have to do this thing. And I said, no, no, you guys, you guys gave me this work assignment. I'm not, I'm not turning my back to this thing you gotta be crazy i said we got the plane ticket we're going uh so yeah it was really funny but that but it's funny because some i think george hirsch and ambie they you know they reached out to a few ultra people and they said oh no no you don't you don't want anyone to do that race that race is crazy and that's when they got a little worried uh but i said I said to them, like, months ago, you guys said I was the guy to do it. Like, what's the deal? And they're like, well, we still think that we just, you know, want you to know there's no pressure that you have to do this. And I said, no, 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 I'm cool. We can, we can get it done. So it was, uh, but I would never have signed up for Badwater as my first ultra had I known uh, if it wasn't a work assignment, I would have, it would have never happened that so way. How, how did you, when you come through the finish, and I think you took second place, is that correct? Yeah, there's there's been variance on what happened because I think the race got in trouble for being on the mountain because they didn't have a permit to finish on Mount Whitney. So and that's why I think they stopped now at the 135 mile mark. So somebody did a results thing at 135 miles, which I never understood because our T-shirt, the entry form, our belt buckle, all the literature we given were given, everything said backwater 146. So I don't know why they did like a finish line at 135 miles. I never. Yeah, it's weird. Did did you win it? Did you? To, I, I put it this: I was the first runner to make it to the finish line at the top of the mountain that followed the entire course. So there was. I can't uh, believe they wouldn't give you the the one. I mean, at least on ultra sign up, right? I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I, oh, I, you you can't. I don't because uh, Adrian Crane, who got to the top of the mountain before I did, but he cut across the desert at some salt flat somewhere and uh tom Possard, who was ahead of me who was a really good ultra guy he never went up to the top of the mountain he was pre-spent at the portals and he never went up so i yeah i don't know there was a lot of confusion back then so that's interesting i, I, I wasn't worried about it because i didn't it didn't mean anything to me other than to get to the finish line and that's all i was assigned to do and that's what i did you know i was so Run the Badwater 146, so that's to, what I did. You get to keep your job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did keep my job. Um, you know, funny, back then, you know, before the internet, uh, before cell phones, before all this stuff, uh, our publisher, George Hirsch, was at some, uh, he was at a track meet, like a uh, 
like a master's track meet somewhere. I think it was in Eugene, Oregon. And everybody knew, you know, all these people that were connected with Runner's World or really connected with the running community that worked for a lot of shoe companies. They knew I was out there doing this race, and they were always asking George, how's he doing? George was like, oh, he's doing great. He's, you know, <laughs> probably at like 80 miles or something like that. I, I, we weren't communicating with George. <laughs> but, he's making it but he was He was exactly right when he would say this, and he told me that afterward. He said, I knew. I'd just tell people everything's good, and uh, we did check uh, voicemail back then, but I don't think we saw a payphone until we got to <laughs> Lone Pine, which is at 125 miles. So back in the 80s, Death Valley was called a national monument. It was not a national park. It became a national park in 1993. So as a national monument, it was just preserved. So the, there was very few, the infrastructure within Death Valley was nothing back then. Nothing like today. When you go out there today and I see all this stuff, I'm like, oh my God. But when it became a national park, they made it into a park and then opened up campsites and uh, hotels at different spots. And But it, what, that stuff didn't exist back when, because uh, I, I know for a fact the first payphone we saw uh, was not till 125 miles, and that's when. And then you, know, you weren't carrying change, anyways. So. Yeah, I wasn't carrying change. Like, <laughs> um, check voicemail and calling the work and things like that. You know, we, you know, get out the calling card from the old days. I know some young people have no idea what we're talking about, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, big deal. And calling cards were a big deal. So you got on the payphone and dialed an 800 number, and then dialed the number, and then punched in these. 14 digits of your calling card and then someone picked up the phone it was yeah. a, a little different than what goes on today so how did you feel after you finished your first ultra which was bad water i mean were you did that set the bar pretty high going forward or were you like let's get back to half marathons or marathons yeah. i just remember coming home and it was a big deal when i came back to the lehigh valley where i live in bethlehem pennsylvania it's a you know town of only sixty thousand people so you know everyone knew me and uh come home and it was a big celebration because a local newspaper covered uh my race you know they had it in the newspaper every day for like three days straight and uh it just seemed like a big deal when i came back into town so it was kind of fun it was uh you know stuff i didn't expect and then uh people said to me okay you got to take this ultra stuff seriously so you know i did a 50 miler and you know i thought okay i can do this stuff i really was decent at it you know my 50 mile time is right at six hours uh just a little over six hours so i thought okay i gotta get serious about this and then uh when I contracted Lyme disease, things changed tremendously. It just didn't, uh, the joint swelling and stuff that would happen when I would run, it just was not conducive to doing ultras. I certainly kept doing ultras, but not at the level that I really wanted to do them. So things things changed a little bit, but but it's still, uh, you know, I, I have some fond memories on some ultras, I'll tell you. Yeah. And uh, most of them were just, uh, you know, it was just stuff that went on, people that you got to meet, and it really, uh, a lot of times, an ultra race, it, ha it can have nothing to do with trying to break a set time or setting a personal best on a specific course. Sometimes it's just the people you meet, and you just go out there and really enjoy the day, and then you come away thinking, oh my God, I wouldn't trade this for anything. 
you know, and, and then you really don't even think about what time you got in the race. You just, like you said, you just connect with people and you end up running the whole way. And, you know, I'm amazed at what you see on the course, you know, kind of an aid station and people are cooking bacon and people eat like five strips of bacon. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I <laughs> stuff that, uh, it just cracks me up. I mean, the Lyme disease, I... Honestly, the very first ultra I did, uh, Thunder Bunny 50K, came home, was showering mud off me because it had rained for like the whole week. It was just a total mud fest. Um, had a tick on the back of my knee. Ooh. And I I don't know if it was your story or what story it was, but we immediately put it in a plastic baggie to, to save the tick. Uh. And uh, I think we immediately went to like a CVS and talked to the pharmacist and um, it's serious though like you, yeah. ne- you need to check for ticks after oh, yeah. trail uh, runs and I mean yeah. you of all after people every- know that right I yeah mean- yeah and I, but I even I did that and still do it and I still got four different uh, acute infections over all the years but you know the first one was 28 years ago so it's it's happened to me four times in the last 28 years an acute infection you you know you really get another bite and uh when you're when they do the western blot and your levels are really high i mean that is the sign of a another you know infection yeah Uh, the residual stuff just goes on forever but the the real infections are bad and the you know, it seems like every time I get it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Like not this past summer, but the summer before, I I would it was uh, it was impossible to think about running. I'd lay in bed and you know couldn't sleep for if you could get a half hour sleep, I was lucky. You just lay there in the fetal position and pray that the pain will stop, and it doesn't stop. And you think that someone's driving nails into your joints. It's brutal. And I goes on, you know. For me, it was going on like five, six nights out of the week for months. And oh finally, gosh. I got to the point that, you know, I just went to the doctor and I said, okay, you always talk about this pain threshold to, for me to rate one to ten. I said, okay, I'm at, there is no number. Like I am, if I were to describe it, it's suicidal. Like if something doesn't change, I cannot live like this anymore. And uh, that's when I went on different treatments. Uh, this past summer, I did a whole series of blood ear ear radiation treatments which the treatments beat you up but i did feel better long term after going through 12 weeks of these treatments so it's a it's not a joy but you know i always look at it you know what what are you going to do like i i never you know i just deal with it and do the best i can i don't uh you know i always think there's people a lot worse off than i am and i make the best of what i have and i mean I've been I was able a, to a run huge, a lot of years with you know yeah. pain free and didn't have any problems. So luckily, I I had some years and just got to deal with what I have going on now. I mean, I I feel for you. I I didn't know it was that painful for you. I knew you still were dealing with it. Um, I didn't know it was that level of pain. Um, and you you've been a huge inspiration for so many people. Like. I want to, I want to shift gears. I have to ask you about comrades because okay, sure. my my dad 
of all people was like you have to ask him about comrades and my, <laughs> awesome. my dad my yeah. dad sent me a picture he met you at a marathon and he basically had a 99.9 percent blockage like wow. essentially had some small heart attacks and changed his whole life and he's finished i think yeah he finished his first marathon in october oh, i don't cool. i don't know where he met you it might have been Columbus Marathon. I don't know where it okay. was, but he's like, "Yeah, you have to ask Bart about <laughs> Comrade. the comrades because yeah. he's like, he just loves hearing more and more about it." I mean, what was what was yes. that experience like? It seems like you hold that ultra in high esteem amongst uh, yeah, all of them. Yeah, I call it the, the greatest foot race in the world, and I still think that to this day. Uh, you know, for me, it was something, you know, I heard about comrades for years, and then I met Bruce Fordyce, guy who won it nine times, and then, uh, you know, I always thought, okay, I'm going to do that race, but I really didn't want to travel to South Africa while apartheid was still law, because I just didn't think it was the right thing to do, and, a, you know, a place to go where... Uh, they think people of color are lesser people. So, I, you know, I just didn't want any part of it. And then when apartheid got abolished, and we actually, we being uh, back when I worked at Runner's World, we launched Runner's World South Africa back in the early 90s, right after the abolishment of apartheid. So it's kind of cool. We have a Runner's World office in South Africa, and, you know, I should get serious about doing comrades. So uh, I entered it. Uh, sometime in the late 90s and I never got there I was sick in the hospital and never made it so I kind of forgot about it and then uh, somewhere around 2003 I said okay I gotta do comrades I got my running back and was feeling good and sure enough <laughs> I enter comrades and I end up in the hospital again and mm -hmm. uh, you know I'm not talking about end up in the hospital you know you come out of the hospital you're happy to walk running is not part of the equation uh so i never i never made it to comrades and that's when i just said okay this comrades thing just isn't isn't gonna happen and then when i wrote the book my life on the run when i got to the very end uh because i really at that point i was so messed up physically i thought you know i really have to stop running completely uh and I just said, you know, my only regret in running is I never did comrades. That was my regret. And when I wrote those, when I actually wrote those words, that's when I said, okay, I got to do this race somehow. I got to get awesome. up wow. just to do it. I don't care what the time I finish. I just have to finish before they close down the finish line and, and be counted as a finisher. So uh, I wrote, So those words were written in January of 2008. And, uh, you know, again, I was really having a lot of physical problems. Uh, walking was hard to do. Running was just not, you know, I could do it occasionally, but I was pretty, pretty beat up. And, uh, but somewhere in 2009, I just got this idea, I got to do comrades next year. I just have to figure it out how to, how I can do it. And so, you know, I was typical, I was at a road marathon being the guest speaker and, you know, I was going to a lot of races speaking, but I wasn't running them. And I just said, okay, I'm going to run this marathon tomorrow. If I, if I can finish this thing, then I'm going to get on the computer and enter comrades. So I did it. It was the Huntsville Marathon in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, I finished the thing. It took me like four and a half hours or something like that. And uh, I said, okay, I'm going to enter comrades. And I did. And then uh, came back in the office and uh, 
told a few people in the office that I was going to run Comrades, and they said, okay, we're going to turn this into a, a story, and we want you to do it as a work assignment. So I said, okay. So we ended up doing a whole video series on it and a feature story, and, uh, you know, it was I, – I was only able to run from beginning of – so the race date, I think, was May 28th or 29th. Uh, it was the end of May, and uh, I – from January 1st till May 29th, I think I ran 14 times, and but 12 of those were marathons. So I was doing road marathons, and that's all I would do. And then I wouldn't run again till uh, till the next road marathon. So I just used those 14 runs, and I got there. And the uh, first thing I did when I got to South Africa was go right to a doctor because I was I wanted to just traveling there put me in a pretty bad way i went out and tried to run i couldn't run at all and then uh with this doctor he helped me out tremendously and he just said you know i'm convinced you can do it and i said okay i said I'm, i convinced myself if i start this thing i'll get there yeah and uh you know and i was doing it for world vision i sponsored two uh children from south africa uh and i got to meet my sponsored child two children and uh it was the coolest thing to meet them before the race and they were going to be out on the course cheering for me so it was one of those things that uh you know you can just dig deep when it's when it's a lot more meaningful than just running so uh you know thinking of those sponsored children those kids you know growing up in rough poverty in south africa and uh, my older brother george who was the one who got me in the doing races he always wanted to play rugby in south africa but uh, of course rugby was or south africa was banned from international competition and olympic competition because of, of apartheid and uh, so my brother never made it to south africa he always wanted to go there so i was thinking of him a lot and because uh, he passed away from cancer uh, as a young guy unfortunately so i was uh you know, i had him thinking about and uh you know this is my personal thing that i always want to do this race and you know i did do it i only only had like 28 minutes to spare before they closed the finish line down wow. but i get wow. there before the finish line closed down and it was uh it was unbelievable one of my all-time running hero heroes a guy by the name of willie Matolo, who's a black south african and uh willie won the new york city marathon in the early 90s and uh, he won that thing, you know, training when it was hard to train because of apartheid. So, uh, you know, black citizens weren't uh, accepted as on any level to, like, be a good athlete or to, to go out on the roads and train 100-plus miles a week. It just wasn't encouraged. In fact, it was actually dangerous to do. But somehow Willie did it and, you know, did it well enough to win the New York City Marathon. So I always uh, – always, he was always one of my running heroes. And uh, – after I finished Comrades and I worked my way back over to the finish line, and uh, I see this tall African guy, uh, you know, like, give me a hug. And I look and I'm like, wow. I, I look him right in the eye and I said, you are Willie Matolo. He goes, yeah, Bart, I'm Willie Matolo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. That's awesome. Said, Willie, you had no clue. You know, like if I had anyone in the world that could have come down and I could have been greeted at this finish line, you would have been my first choice. That's awesome. He just gave me this big smile. Uh, it was it was the coolest thing. And like, you know, you can't script something like that. It just kind of Willie Willie actually did comrades after he 
got his uh, marathon stuff, you know, over with. He, he did yeah. come. I don't think he ever won, but he was in like the top three. Jeez. That'll show you the quality of comrades. The guy who can win the New York City Marathon could not win comrades. So uh, that, that's, I got to ask you your thoughts on Camille and what she's done. Yeah, of course she wanted not this past year, the year before, I believe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, 2017. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, she just, I mean, Camille is just one of these, you know, I've known her for a couple of years, and I, I don't think the only person that knew she wasn't really good at this stuff was Camille. Uh, I think she, you know, she... She's just one of these people that she's just happy with everything she does, and she's just a beautiful, nice person. So I don't think she was like, oh, I got to go win these big races. And But that stuff started happening to her, and she started getting faster and setting records. And then, you know, and then she goes to Comrades and wins the thing. I mean, God, I was uh, – it was the coolest thing because I was following it online, and, uh, you know, it, it just had to blow her away because when you win that race, you are literally – king and the queen of the country of South Africa. Uh, doesn't matter where you're from or any of your running history, if you win comrades, you are like the highest ranking people in South Africa. And then all the finishers are, you know, the, the next ranking people. I mean, it is such a big deal in this country. Uh, you know, you meet these you go off to these small villages and these kids that live without televisions, without the internet, without cell phones, and live in a thatched roof hut. They know about comrades and they know the history of comrades and past winners of comrades. And you're like, how? Do, I mean, it's amazing. This race is this big a deal to this country. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's what makes it special. And you know, I I talked to a lot of the Black South Africans when I was there. Uh, before the race and after the race and uh you know a lot of them that have been doing comrades for many years they always they always shared the same sentiment they said you know during those tough apartheid years when they were out there running comrades they felt like apartheid didn't exist so you know if they were out there for nine hours or ten hours or some of them five and a half hours uh you know they really got that piece that uh this awful law did not exist when they were out there running because nobody, you know, everyone was the same. When the gun went off, you know, you just followed followed everyone else to the finish line. And then every other part of their life, being a black citizen was, you know, you were, you were treated differently and you weren't allowed to do things, certain things. And it was, uh, but comrades made a level playing field for everyone. So to think that a running race can suppress something as evil as apartheid, if it's even just for 12 hours out of a year, it's still something very powerful. Yeah. That's, you know, when you, uh, you know, you can see the, the sadness in their, their eyes when they tell you these stories of trying to train during apartheid and doing the race, you know, uh, that. You know, they were just, they were happy with the opportunity. None of them ever, uh, that's the biggest message they, they told me is that, you know, we just had to go out there and do the best we could because we had this opportunity to go out there and do it. And, you know, for the early years of Comrades, they didn't allow black citizens to run. So it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting to hear their perspective and to physically see the emotion, you know, see the tears rolling down their cheeks. Uh, when they talk about this stuff, man, it uh, 
it's powerful. Yeah. And when you're I when you're there, can't even imagine. Yeah, you're. Uh, you know, when they they drug me up on the stage at the start, and uh, you know, I was after interviewing a lot of these athletes and talking to a lot of them and thinking, okay, like 50 years ago, there would have been no black citizens in this race. And I'm up there looking out there and seeing so many black South Africans so proud to be able to run this race. You know, it's, a, it, it's just hard to imagine that they were not given that opportunity. Amazing. And that's what they wanted is opportunity. You know, they didn't ask for it. They don't care what corral they start in or, you know, they didn't care if they had shoes or didn't have shoes. All they wanted was the opportunity to do it. And everyone should be given the opportunity. Yeah, I agree. That's awesome. So I'm going to switch gears into a few quick questions, and then I want to finish on uh, a slightly different note. So... I'm going to start with some Patreon supporter questions because I told him, hey, Bart Yasa's coming on, and sure. I got a lot of a lot of responses. <laughs> a lot of people love you, Bart. That's um, nice to hear about that. Yeah, like off the charts compared to, um, you know, hey, I'm going to give my own race recap. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. Like maybe one response. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so I'll start off, and I'm just throwing in one gear question. Toe socks or no toe socks? No toe socks. Have you ever tried toe socks? I, I've tried them, yeah, and I actually like. I just, okay. it just is, I just, I actually like no toe socks because they're just easier to put on. And I just <laughs> throw them on and I'm ready to go. Just need some practice. They'll, <laughs> yeah. they'll pop on quick. All right, so Dave within our group, um, super fast guy. He ran a three-hour flat at Boston this year. Uh, yeah, he brother. says, please define Yasso 800s because yeah. um, there, there's quite a few different like definitions out there. And how yeah, does well, altitude affect these marathon predictions? Sure. So altitude does play a role. So the original, you know, Yasso 800, 10 times 800, 400 meter recovery. I used to do that like I did that workout about five or six times leading up to the marathon before I started my taper. Uh, and I, you know, if I wanted to run a 240 marathon, I averaged two, two minutes and 40 seconds in my 10 times 800. And then when you got to the race, you obviously had to adjust to the conditions. Was it perfect running weather? Then you go for that time you think you're capable of doing based on the Yasuo 800s. You know, if it's a hot day or rain or wind or whatever, you make slight adjustments. Uh, doing the Yasuo 800 workout at altitude is, uh, you know, now it's a different animal because you have to adjust the pace to the altitude that you're doing it at. And everyone's different. You know, some people do very well at altitude and some people suffer at altitude. So I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to adjust for altitude. Yeah. But to be honest, I just know that, you know, at sea level or close to sea level, 10 times 800 and do the 800 meters in the time you want to do your marathon in. Of course, the 800 meters in minutes and seconds versus your marathon time would be hours and minutes, but the correlation would be the same. You want to run a 320 marathon, run the 800s, three minutes and 20 seconds. But I did 10 times 800 with a 400-meter recovery, and I did that workout at least five or six times before the taper and, uh, and a bunch of other workouts, five times a mile and, you know, and of course, you know, eight or ten long runs over twenty plus miles. You know, you just you got to do everything. 
but the but the Oslo 800s, I really love that 10 times 800 workout. Yeah, I, I think your favorite workout's gonna have some staying power. I, uh, yeah. I, no one, no one is ever gonna try to take over that uh, that name and, of that workout, regardless and, of how it happened. Um, gotcha. And Ann Burford was the one who named them Yasu 800s, and he just named them after me because you know he, I explained why I do them, and then he said. You know, if my name was Smith or Jones, he would have never named him. But he said, he said, I, you know, I have a name, you know, like Yahoo or Google. Yeah. I didn't say that back then because those words weren't commonplace when when uh, we're talking early '90s. But but he said you got an unusual name and just the name it's gonna stick. And I thought he was crazy and wrong, but he was right. So Roger had kind of a related question. I thought it was a really good one. Maybe he's trying to go after the Roger 800s here. Um, yeah. Is there any, do these translate into predicting any kind of ultra marathon time? Ooh, I don't think so. But kind of interesting, I, I right? Roger should create like uh, Roger, you know, whatever kind of workout, whatever Roger's favorite workout is, and then do do a very similar spin. So, you know, I, 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 I remember training with rich hannah who was one of the greatest ultra runners ever in, in the u.s in fact he won a silver medal in the world uh, 100k in the world 100k rich hannah is an amazing guy uh he used to do this uh two and a half mile climb called green gate out in sacramento and i did that workout with him a couple of times back when i could run well and i always thought it, it should be the hannah green gate whatever it was, two and a half miles or whatever. But whatever, if Roger has some type of workout that he does, some distance that he likes to do repeats for ultras, which I think, you know, like a like a section of a trail that's like two and a half miles, you know, where yeah. you can really challenge yourself and do that repeat a couple times and then you really see progress that you get faster on this. I think that's a, that's a thing to do and then we'll name it after Roger. <laughs> Got to come up with a clever connection to it and uh, – you know, like Greengate, I thought was a cool thing, and it, 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 the, the hill workout was called Greengate because when we finished, there was just like this green gate laying on the side of the trail. So, hmm. Is that, yeah. is we that can't close think, to the western states? Yes, we'd okay. leave the American River and climb up, uh, and the Greengate finish area was up by Auburn. Yeah, so I was very, I don't think it was exactly on finish of the western states trail but it's very close to the finish of the western states trail interesting and uh last question from patreon tara asked what recommendations for transitioning to ultras from primarily road runs yeah so if you really want to be fast in the ultra world i you know obviously i do most of my running on trails and i just love running on trails but i do tell a lot of ultra runners you know if to to uh, to be fast it, in trail running, you have to go on the road every once in a while and keep that leg speed going. And then uh, you know, of course, do a you know a lot of miles on the trails. But I think doing road stuff keeps that leg speed and keeps you fast. And then uh, you know, as long as you train on the trails, you're used to running on the trails. That's that combination. But when you make that transition from road running to ultras, you know, it's just. Uh, Embrace it. Understand what you're, you know, like I say, uh, the easiest transition to do is just add a few miles on your long run and yeah. just the pace down. Yep. And, and understand when you get on the trail that it's fine to take walk breaks and, uh, and it's fine to eat. 
you know, <laughs> that's one of the things on ultra running, you know, and do some of these races, you literally just run to the next mortgage board of <laughs> fruit and cookies and potato chips and then go, okay. And that's the carrot to the next, uh, just keep running until you see the next table of potato chips and cantaloupe. And then, uh, you know, eventually you get to the finish line somehow. So I, I have two quick last questions here on this front. And that is, is Bart Yasso's favorite run secretly like mile repeats? Like what's your favorite oh, training run? Oh, well, outside of trail, I mean, I love doing trail stuff. But if I, uh, there's this park near where I live called Jacobsburg. And uh, I set up this course that i used to do and i used to use that loop to see what kind of shape i was in and i didn't know the exact distance when i started doing that loop back in to the mid 80s uh because we didn't have the devices to do to, to, to uh yeah. but i always thought it was about 10 and a half miles and then when all the uh technology came along i went to that course and darn it was 10 and a half miles but that was my favorite workout to warm up like two miles and blast this ten and a half miles, you know, just as fast as I could, and then uh, a two mile warm down. That was really my favorite workout to do. That's this interesting. Ten and a half miles so, on trails, and that's what, you know, I used to pass a lot of mountain bikers, and uh, there were always I would see a couple hikers on this trail that I'd be on, and they would always say, "Dude, you are flying!" <laughs> and back then, I could you know, run fast, but I think they just weren't used to people running these trails. And, uh, you know, there were a couple of mountain bikers out there that, you know, I would decimate them on the uphill because it, <laughs> it's easier to run. It's easier to run fast up a hill than it is to, you know, and I cycle all the time. It's it, it's uh, much easier to run up a hill than it is to go up on a bike, especially back in the when mountain bikes first came out because they didn't have the gearing they have today and they didn't have the tires they have today. And I just remember these bikes just like, dude, what the hell? And, you know, they would... <laughs> When it flattened out or some downhill, they could obviously catch up to me, but they would just think that I was out of my mind, and I just I just got this. It's like a little ten and a half mile time trial I used to do, and nice. man, it's fascinating because I mean your name will forever be associated with eight hundred repeats, so it's cool that yeah, your, your actual like your favorite run was this loop, so that's cool to know. Yeah. So last quick question. What are your thoughts on 200 milers? Because, you know, there, there are people that keep wanting to test their limits. Yeah, I mean, I, what are your I, thoughts on those crazy folks? Yeah, I keep seeing this stuff. You know, I love it that people are willing to challenge themselves and to really, you know, I, I mean, no one is built to run 200 miles. I mean, the body, it's, I, I even think the 100 miles, once you get into these longer distances, so much of it is mental. So people that can go out and run 200 miles, I am in awe. I mean, it's just uh, they're strong people. Uh, it's interesting. I I just didn't know because you you've done 146, so you know, yeah. in in the conditions were as hard as it gets. Uh, yeah, that, that was rough conditions. But you know, but I was younger and, and pretty fit back then. Uh, you know, to challenge myself today, I uh, there's no way I could think about doing 200 a 200 miler. But you know, I think of runners that you know are just like they're just good runners and love it. You know, I yeah. could see them challenging those challenging challenging themselves to do 200 miles. I'm just in awe of anyone that 
you know, is willing to sign on the dotted line and enter a 200-mile race. You know, I, I, come, I say that because I come from back in the day where we filled out entry forms and you actually mailed them in with a self-addressed stamped envelope to get a confirmation back that you sent this in and <laughs> it was a different world. Now, of course, everything's done online, but just to go online and sign up for a 200-mile race, is uh, it's, it's impressive. And, uh, I, you know, I just, like I say, I think the mental aspect of it is harder than the physical. That, uh, you've got a, I, lot, of, got a lot of hours to talk yourself out of this. Yeah, every aid station. Oh, every aid station's a potential drop zone. That, so. but I just, you know, <laughs> down this chair and I'm good to go. My, you know, my family will still be there. My my wife will still give me crap about talking about ultra running at the at the kitchen table. <laughs> Life goes on. But it's the people that just say they they really want to do this, and this is what they feel is you know, will uh, help them in the other facets of their life to prove that they can overcome a lot of stuff and just yeah. uh, dig deep. It's, I'm in awe of anyone that would, uh, For, I mean, so on any 50 mile, 100 mile, 200 mile, that is really someone who's a strong human being that uh, I admire someone that would sign up for a 200 mile race. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to hear your perspective on it just because it's a newer Candace Burt sort of invention. So, I yeah. want to I want to finish on inspiration because of all people I could talk to on the planet, you have seen some of the most amazing finish lines and inspiring stories. I just want to hear one or two quick stories, like like what do you think about you know going to bed, like a truly inspirational. Uh, story that you're still like it still is with Bart Yasso you've seen thousands if not tens of thousands maybe even close to a million of these like is there one or two that just really sticks with you that um, inspires you yeah I think I think the people that you know have done stuff that no one's ever done like uh, Sarah Reinertsen is a perfect perfect example. She's a good friend of mine, and Sarah was the first woman to do the Hawaii Ironman on a prosthetic leg. Wow. And when you're the first one to do this stuff, you know, like, you know, basically you're saying, you know, no one has done this. So, you know, you have to have the guts to go out there and be that first person to do it. Uh, that kind of stuff just really... You know, I think of those people and think, damn, that's uh, that's the coolest ever. Uh, you know, I think of a, you know, the Godfather of ultra running, Ted Corbett. Uh, you know, I used to hear all these Ted Corbett stories from my old boss George Hirsch, who was a publisher of Runners World for many years. And you know, Ted Corbett was doing these ultras when, you know, before even road running took off. So I mean, how does a guy? Here's this African-American guy in New York City running three laps around Manhattan on a Saturday morning. 75 miles was his training run. Uh, you know, how, how do you – I just can't even wrap my head around that, you know. Uh, but he was doing it and back in the 60s. And, you know, his uh, his training log, like they figured out he's – he, you know, uh, his son was figuring out how many miles he ran in his life. And it was like – 210,000 or something incredible but he had everything detailed he had every run written down and you know it was it was real miles but I you know how I, I just can't uh, 
I can't, you know, someone like Sarah or Ted, like they did stuff that no one else was doing. Uh, you know, no one back in the 60s was waking up on a Saturday morning and say, oh, I'm going to run three times around Manhattan, 75 miles. Like, I, you've got to be kidding me. I don't think anyone since the 60s or six, since him has thought that. That is, wow. Yeah, there was this famous story wow. that we told at Runner's World over and over again when we had our, you know, like just fun gatherings with our staff. Uh, so George Hershey was our publisher. Uh, he, he headed out the door to grab a cup of coffee in the newspaper. You know, this is years ago. And uh, he sees Ted Corbett, who he idolized like, like I idolized. And uh, he was like, I think he was on his second lap around Manhattan. So <laughs> Ted says, like, run with me, George. So... George, like, he didn't buy his coffee or newspaper yet, but he, you know, he said to his wife, I'm going to get a coffee and newspaper, and he ends up running 25 miles around Manhattan with Ted Corbett, and, and <laughs> you know, his whole family thinks he's dead somewhere or got kidnapped, or, you know, it doesn't take four hours to, to go out and get a newspaper and coffee in New York City when there's a <laughs> newspaper stand back then on every corner. Uh, it's so funny to hear stories like it, but George just, you know, he, he is like a fanboy. He's like, oh my God, I can run a lap with Ted Corbett. I'm doing it. He ran 25 miles with him. You know, he happened to be dressed in running clothes because he was going to read the paper and have coffee and then go for a run. So he was, he's wearing running clothes and he just took off. I can't, uh, that kind of stuff is just, uh, you know, those stories just crack me up. But Ted Corbett, you know, if you read a lot of the stuff he did, I mean, he was doing stuff that nobody did back then. And, uh, you know, he's an amazing, amazing guy. Well, Bart, I, I feel like I could talk to you all night, and I hope to have you on the show again. I really, really enjoyed your time and your stories, and just you're, you're truly a legend in our sport, and it's so cool that you – are willing to just you know take the time to share your experiences and and keep inspiring people so oh, um any uh, anytime you're in denver anytime uh, we'll go I'll for a hike we'll go for uh, a run we'll do whatever you want um uh, I, I go for a run with you someday that would uh that would be the coolest thing i would love that opportunity i get to denver every once in a while it'd be a true okay. honor and again it's an honor having you on the show and I know, I know you made my dad a happy guy talking about comrades. <laughs> so truly, thank you for taking the time and look forward to staying in touch and, and hearing what's up next for you. All right, Rob. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for all you're doing for the running community. Keep up the great work. Thank you. And that's episode 67. Big thank you to Bart Yasso again for taking all that time. Big thank you to the show sponsors, Hammer Nutrition, Destination Trail, Sufferfest Beer, and Exoskin. Huge supporters. Couldn't do it without you guys, along with all you Patreon supporters. Truly appreciate you. And if you haven't pre-ordered the book, check it out. It's now available for pre-order, and I'll throw in those extras for you. Don't forget to enjoy your training. Have fun out there. Have a great week. See ya.